Chapter One, Part One of Twenty Years of the Republic, eighteen eighty five to nineteen hundred five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Celine Major. Twenty Years of the Republic by Harry Thurston Peck. The Return of the Democracy, Part One. On the fourth day of March, 1885, Grover Cleveland of New York took the oath prescribed by the Constitution and became, in doing so, the 22nd President of the United States. As he paused for a moment after pronouncing the solemn words and looked out over the multitude which filled the vast expanse before the Capitol, he must have felt, unimaginative though he was, a thrill of irrepressible emotion. Three years before, his name had been unknown beyond the limits of the provincial city where he lived. Now the tumultuous cheers that drowned even the thunder of saluting cannon acclaimed him as the elected ruler of the mightiest republic upon earth. He had accomplished the impossible. He had succeeded where men of large experience and wide renown had ignominiously failed. He had led to victory a political party which seemed to have incurred the fate of perpetual banishment from power. And in achieving this, he, a country lawyer with no especial knowledge of statecraft or of national policies, had defeated the most brilliant, the most resourceful, and the most passionately loved of all American party leaders. Washington had never before seen so great a concourse assembled to witness the inauguration of a president. More than half a million people had poured into the city during the preceding week. They came from every state and territory of the Union, eager to share in celebrating the return of the Democratic Party, at last again triumphant. The military display was in itself a splendid spectacle. Not since the great reviews which marked the end of the Civil War had so many marching regiments swung down the noble boulevard which leads from the White House to the Capitol. Every arm of the regular establishment was represented. Cavalry, infantry, artillery, and engineers with detachments of blue jackets and marines. A whole division of the National Guard of Pennsylvania was in line. A body of southern soldiers headed by General Fitzhugh Lee, and with the famous 5th Maryland in the van, was there. Contingents from New York and Rhode Island in the east and from Missouri in the west marched close behind the regulars. There was also a battalion of colored troops whose fine appearance called forth hearty and prolonged applause. The civic organizations were still more numerous, and political clubs with picturesque regalia and often in striking costume completed the long line which later passed in review before the president to the music of a hundred military bands. The day was redolent of spring, and as the stream of bayonets flashed in the sunshine and the flags unfurled their folds in the soft west wind, the sight was inspiring in its animation and movement and vivid color. Yet the throng which lined the avenue was no less interesting in the variety of types which it exhibited. It was a different gathering from that which Washington had been wont to see at the inauguration of Republican presidents. The men of the South were far more numerous, and there were many present who had long been strangers to the capital city. For them it was the dawning of a new era, and their mingled faith and triumph were almost touching to behold. There were, besides, not a few gaunt figures of an old-time quaintness, intense and half-fanatical partisans from remote localities, displaying with a sort of pride the long white beards which years before they had vowed never to shave until a democratic president should be inaugurated. 
a feeling of eager expectancy of pleasurable excitement and frank exaltation swayed the entire multitude and even those who owed allegiance to the defeated party could not wholly resist the spell it was for the moment an apotheosis of the democracy when the new president entered the carriage which was to convey him to his official home few gave any thought to a gentleman who had stood quietly beside him throughout the simple ceremonial and who presently took friendly leave of him with a cordial clasp of the hand and a word or two of congratulation and goodwill it was the familiar little scene that has been so frequently enacted in our country when one who for a few short years has been the ruler of a nation and the peer of monarchs goes back at the stroke of the clock into the obscurity of private citizenship unheeded and unheralded amid the strident din that welcomes his successor there is always something half pathetic in this sudden transformation yet it is impressive too for it symbolizes american reverence for law ex-president arthur though unnoticed at the moment when he quietly slipped away from washington carried with him into private life the respect and confidence of all his countrymen for he had governed well and wisely yet no president had ever entered into office under circumstances of such perplexity and personal embarrassment mr arthur had been nominated for the vice-presidency on the ticket with general garfield in the hasty almost reckless fashion of our national conventions he was chosen not because he was thought to be peculiarly fitted for the honor, but simply, as the politician's slang expresses it, to placate the stalwart or conkling wing of the Republican Party which had fought bitterly to secure the selection of General Grant and which resented fiercely the nomination of General Garfield. At that time the country knew very little of Mr. Arthur and what it did know was not wholly favorable. He was regarded as a typical New York politician an active member of the so-called custom-house gang, which parceled out the local federal appointments and dickered for the petty spoils of office. This estimate was not entirely unjust. Mr. Arthur had been by no means too fastidious in his political associations. He had kept some rather dubious company while acting as the lieutenant of the aggressive Conkling, whose intimate friend he was. But Mr. Arthur had another side of which the country was not then aware. He was one who drew a very sharp line between his public and his private life. Personally, he was a gentleman of cultivated tastes, a university graduate, familiar with the usages of polite society, and having an easy adaptability which made him equally at home in a lady's drawing-room, in the fumoir of a club, or in the noisome atmosphere of a riotous ward primary. Intellectually, he was well-trained and disciplined. In the years preceding the Civil War, he had attained to eminence in the practice of law. He conducted to a successful issue a case which affected the validity of the fugitive slave law, and he secured a decision which is still a classic in American political-legal history. Note 1, page 5. Nor was he without experience of administrative responsibility. During the war he had at different times been Inspector General and Quartermaster General of the State of New York, and had won high commendation for his efficiency in organizing and equipping the 600,000 troops with which that state met the requisitions of President Lincoln. Later, he had been Collector of the Port of New York under President Grant. But when he became Vice President in 1881, the country at large knew him only as a local politician of no very high repute. He sided with Senator Conkling when that arrogant leader soon after declared open war on President Garfield for refusing to let the New York senator dictate the federal appointments in his state, and Mr. Arthur was loyal to Conkling throughout the bitter strife that followed.
Then, in the midst of it, the president was shot down by a crazed fanatic, Charles Guiteau, and lay for months fighting against death with splendid courage. With the first shock of grief and horror which stirred the nation when Garfield fell, there was mingled a feeling of deep resentment. It was held that indirectly the president was a victim of the Conkling faction, whose denunciations of him had worked upon the morbid mind of his assassin. Some, in their excess of feeling, went further still. Strange rumors flew about, and sinister accusations were made in private talk. Men even cherished a wild belief that a conspiracy had planned the murder of the president. In the first excited hours it was hinted that, either with or without his knowledge, a plot had been formed to place Mr. Arthur in the presidency, and in this way to deliver the administration into stalwart hands. Few, even then, were willing to listen to so wild a charge yet the feeling against Mr. Arthur for a time was very bitter. The newspapers, especially in the eastern states, spoke of him in terms of rancor. They deplored the possibility that this pothouse politician, as they called him, might take the place of Garfield, whom popular sympathy had already idealized as a martyr. Throughout these trying months, when the country hung upon the daily bulletins from Elberon, Mr. Arthur made no sign. Just what he suffered, no man knew but his dignified reserve was never broken, and when it was hinted that he might act as president during the period of Mr. Garfield's incapacity, he repelled the suggestion with indignant sternness. At last came the death of Garfield in September, 1881. Mr. Arthur assumed the office which thus came to him under circumstances so distressing. Before long the country learned to know the man as he really was. From the very outset he was the president of no faction, of no party, but of the entire people. Firm, wise, and vigilant, his administration was one of the very best in all our history. To his former political allies he showed no undue favor. To his former enemies he manifested no unfairness, but stood between them and the anger of Conkling, whose vindictive spirit led him in consequence to break off all relations with the president. Garfield's appointees were retained in office. Even the request of General Grant could not secure the displacement of the Secretary of the Navy and the substitution of a stalwart. Many of those who Mr. Arthur thus protected repaid his generosity with the blackest ingratitude. All through his administration, they and other friends of Garfield carried on an underhanded warfare against him, a warfare of pinpricks rather than of blows delivered in the open. Calling themselves the Garfield Avengers, they tried in every way to belittle Mr. Arthur's public acts and even to discredit his private life. In this manner, between the frank reproaches of his former friends and the treacherous enmity of his former foes, President Arthur's term of office afforded him no very pleasurable experience. Yet, at least, he never gave his ill-wishers the satisfaction of seeing that he winced. He was not one who wore his heart upon his sleeve, but he went on his way with an outward serenity that did honor to his strength of character. His political courage was shown in some very striking acts. Although there is no doubt that he desired a second term of office, he never flinched from what he held to be his duty, however unpopular the discharge of it might be. Thus he vetoed the Chinese Exclusion Bill of 1882 in the face of the unanimous and excited demands of the far western states for its enactment into law. In the same year he vetoed a foolishly extravagant river and harbor bill appropriating some $19 million. 
Again, although in former years he had himself been emphatically a spoilsman, as president he advocated and secured the passage in 1883 of an act reforming the civil service and establishing an effective civil service commission. He did all that was possible to secure the prosecution and conviction of those corrupt officials who had systematically robbed the government through the notorious Star Root contracts in the Postal Service. But his most enduring claim to honorable remembrance is found in his energetic efforts to build up an efficient navy in place of the grotesque collection of antiquated hulks on which the Grant administration had spent some sufficient to have given the United States a modern fighting fleet. President Arthur was, in fact, the true creator of the new American Navy, of which the first vessels, the Chicago, the Atlanta, the Boston, and the Dolphin, were laid down while he was president. Upon its personal and social side, his presidency was one to be long remembered. The honors of the White House were done with a graceful dignity such as had never yet been known there. The president had lost his wife some years before. But his sister, Mrs. McElroy, an accomplished woman of great social charm, frequently presided at official functions. The diplomatic dinners were rescued from this smothered ridicule with which the foreign envoys had always viewed them, and the pungent epigram of Mr. Everts, apropos of one of President Hayes' entertainments, suddenly lost its point. Note 2. Page 8. As for the President himself, he must be regarded as the only man of the world, in the best sense of that term, who has ever occupied the White House. Jefferson might, perhaps, have been cited as another instance were it not that, during his first term, he cultivated an ostentatious boorishness such as would have been impossible in a thoroughbred. President Arthur, however, was an ideal host both to his public and his private guests. Of a fine presence, courteous, witty, tactful, and possessing infinite savoir-vivre, he was a living refutation of the taunt which Europeans sometimes level at us, to the effect that eminence in American politics is unattainable by one who is a gentleman at heart. Mr. Arthur kept the domestic side of his menage a thing entirely apart from his official life. Coarse-minded, peeping correspondents, male and female, found scant material here for vulgar paragraphs of kitchen gossip. There were published no foolish, nauseating chronicles of the daily doings of the White House. The President's children were not photographed and paragraphed and made the subject of a thousand flat and fatuous stories. Beyond the veil of self-respecting privacy which was drawn before the President's personal affairs, few ever penetrated. The only tale that reached the public was one that made even the Paul Priss of the press ashamed of their own curiosity. It became known that in one of the President's private apartments there was hung the portrait of a woman before which every morning, by Mr. Arthur's personal order, great masses of cut flowers were heaped. Here was a rarely promising hint for the greedy journalist, eager to give his next dispatch from Washington a touch of sauce piquant. With vast ingenuity and by bringing the resources of the press to bear, the secret was ferreted out at last, and the portrait was found to be that of the President's dead wife. It was very characteristic of the man who, to the world at large, was always the master of practical affairs, with just a suggestion of the viveur about him, that he should in private have cherished this delicate sentiment which did him so much honor. Perhaps it was precisely President Arthur's dignity and perfect taste that shut him out from the broader popularity which some other presidents have enjoyed. Democracies prefer their idols to have feet of clay. Their ruler must not be too far above those whom he rules, and he must not show too markedly those finer traits which instinctively arouse the furtive suspicion and half-dislike of the ignorant and unenlightened. 
the many-headed monster fawns only at the feet of those who flatter it by imitation, or who unconsciously partake of its uncouthness. The Orsons and Calibans of politics have an innate antipathy to a gentleman. It is not likely that even so great a man as Lincoln could have kept his powerful hold upon the masses had he not possessed some qualities which many of his truest friends deplored. His ultimate success was due, no doubt, before all else, to his sagacity, his perfect knowledge of human nature, and his infinite patience. Yet much of it must surely be ascribed to the awkwardness of his appearance and the unconventionality of his manners. The Hoosiers and suckers of the still untutored West could not rightly understand the consummate statecraft of which he was a master, his inborn genius for the task of government, but when they heard that he slapped his visitors upon the back and told indecent stories and received the ministers of foreign powers while sprawling in a wooden rocking-chair, shoeless and with his huge feet covered with blue yarn socks, then they felt that he was one of themselves, not President Lincoln, but good old Abe. That which repelled a Sumner or an Adams gripped and held fast the hearts of the men of Sangamon. Note 3, page 11. But Mr. Arthur had not been bred in such a school. His type was one that neither likes nor courts the familiarity of a mob's approval. He had no eccentricities, no traits that were either crude or whimsical, no suggestion of self-consciousness or pose. He was simply a dignified and courteous gentleman, plus regum arturus, as one of his admirers quoted of him. And looking back upon his brave and honorable bearing under the strain of incessant vexation and temptation, the American people have reason to be proud because the role of their chief magistrates contains the name of Chester Allen Arthur. At the time when Mr. Cleveland was inaugurated, there had been no Democratic president for a full quarter of a century. A whole generation had been born and had grown to manhood and to womanhood without ever having lived under any but Republican rule. This long continuance in power of a single party had led many citizens to identify the interests of that party with the interests of the nation. The Democrats had been so invariably beaten at the polls as to make Republicans believe that the defeated party had no decent reason for existence and that it was composed only of willful obstructionists or of persons destitute of patriotism. On the other hand, the Republican Party, identified as it was with success and with so much creditable achievement, was held by them to monopolize all the political virtues of the American people. To criticize its leaders or to attack its policies seemed to many almost treasonable. To it were ascribed not only the successful conduct of a great war, the extinction of slavery, and the triumph of nationalism over the particularistic spirit of secession, but also the maintenance of the country's commercial credit and of its financial honor. Few remembered that without the support of loyal Democrats at the North, the government must have yielded to the Confederacy. Few took the trouble to recall the fact that of the great Union commanders, Sherman, Sheridan, McClellan, and Meade were Democrats, while Grant himself, though a resident of Lincoln's own state, had never voted for a Republican until after the war ended. Nor was it kept in mind that Stanton, the remarkable military administrator, and Chase, the great finance minister, had been Democrats, that Lincoln's second nomination to the presidency came to him not from the Republican Party, but from a union convention composed of Republicans and Democrats alike. These things had been long forgotten. Partisan Republicans had come to look upon the existence of the Democratic Party as a rather sorry joke in the face of its long record of disaster and defeat. That it could ever return to power appeared to them not only an improbable, but even a ludicrous assumption. 
Among the ablest of the Republican leaders, however, a much saner view prevailed. These men were acutely conscious of certain facts of which their followers were ignorant. No political phenomenon, indeed, is more remarkable than the almost even balance between the two great parties from 1860 down to 1884. The large majorities which the Republican candidates had received in the Electoral College were utterly misleading as an indication of the comparative strength of the two parties throughout the country. A glance at the popular vote in each presidential election revealed a very interesting state of things, and showed that it was the distribution of the voters rather than their numbers which had given the Republican success. For example, in the election of 1860, as is well known, Mr. Lincoln, who had a clear majority of 57 electoral votes, was only a minority candidate in the popular vote, for had both wings of the democracy been united, the ballots which they cast would have outnumbered those given to Mr. Lincoln by more than a quarter of a million. In the election of 1864, which took place at one of the most critical periods of the war, Mr. Lincoln had an electoral majority over General McClellan of 191 votes and a popular majority of 407,000 votes. But in this election, the eleven southern states, being then outside the Union, took no part. At the election of 1868, out of a popular vote of nearly six million, General Grant, then at the very climax of his fame, received a popular majority of 305,000 votes, or almost one quarter less than had been cast for Lincoln, while three southern states were still unrepresented in the count. In 1872, Grant's first administration had caused such widespread discontent that the liberal Republican schism took place, headed by such well-known leaders as Senator Sumner, Carl Schurz, Charles Francis Adams, Horatio Greeley, and Whitelaw Reed. Had the Democrats at this time made good use of the opportunity afforded them, they might have gained a signal victory. A candidate such as Charles Francis Adams of high character and proved ability could probably have won. But the nomination of Horace Greeley led to the lamentable fiasco which continued President Grant in office by a popular majority of 762,000 votes. This proved, however, in the end to be a pyrrhic victory. The very fullness of their triumph removed all feeling of restraint from the Republican leaders, and there followed four years of government tainted by public scandal of every description. The Secretary of War resigned to avoid impeachment for bribery, the Navy Department was honeycombed with jobbery. The revelations in connection with the whiskey ring startled and disgusted honest men throughout the country. The President's own relatives and intimate friends were proved to have traded on their influence with him. Note 4, page 14. Mr. Colfax, the Republican Speaker of the House and afterward Vice President, several Senators, and a number of Representatives were smirched by their connection with the Credit Mobilier. Moreover, the use of federal troops in sustaining the iniquities of carpetbag government in the South had become more and more distasteful to the people of the North. The dissatisfaction of the country over such a state of things was shown at the election of 1876, when on the face of the returns the Democratic candidate, Mr. Tilden, had a clear majority of the electoral vote. This result was disputed, and the Electoral Commission created by Congress canvassed the returns in such a way as to give the presidency to Mr. Hayes by a majority of one vote, 185 to 184, Mr. Tilden having a popular majority of 250,000 votes. Note 5, page 15. This election seemed to the more astute Republican leaders like the handwriting on the wall presaging an end of Republican supremacy. 
The administration of President Hayes, however, considerably strengthened the party to which he belonged. A man of very moderate ability, he was nevertheless precisely the president that the country needed at the time. Henry Ward Beecher once described his administration as a bread poultice, and the description, though not wholly complimentary, was fairly just. Party feuds were healed. Governmental scandals came to an end. Federal troops were withdrawn from the South. Under the able management of Secretary Sherman, the Treasury resumed specie payments. Note 6, page 15. Hence, at the next election, that of 1880, the Republicans were again successful, and General Garfield had an electoral majority of 59 votes. Yet the record of the popular vote was exceedingly significant. Nearly 9 million ballots had been cast, and out of these 9 million ballots, Garfield's majority over Hancock was only 815. Note 7, page 15. The numerical difference, therefore, between the Republican and Democratic parties at this time was equal only to the population of an insignificant village. So extraordinary close a division had never before been known. It was obvious that Republican success at the next election hung, as it were, by a very slender thread. It was while the political scales were in this state of almost perfect equipoise that the Republican Convention met in Chicago on June 3, 1884, to nominate its candidates for president and vice-president, respectively. President Arthur hoped for a nomination, and on the first ballot he received 278 votes. But even at the outset he was outstripped by James G. Blaine of Maine, who led with 334.5 votes. This lead was steadily maintained in spite of the opposition of many distinguished Republican leaders, and on the fifth ballot Mr. Blaine received 541 votes and was declared the nominee amid a scene of tumultuous enthusiasm. General John A. Logan of Illinois was nominated for the vice presidency. The Democratic Convention meeting in St. Louis on July 8th took but two ballots. In the first of these, Grover Cleveland of New York led with 392 votes as against 170 cast for Mr. Bayard of Delaware, and on the second ballot he secured the nomination by 683 votes to 145 and a half cast for Mr. Thomas A. Hendricks of Indiana. As soon as Mr. Cleveland had been nominated as the Democratic candidate for the presidency, Mr. Hendricks was unanimously named for the office of vice president. The nomination of Mr. Blaine produced an indescribable sensation throughout the length and breadth of the United States. No American statesman had ever had more ardent and intensely loyal friends than he, as none had ever had more virulent and bitter enemies. The former hailed his candidacy with intense enthusiasm. The latter began at once moving heaven and earth to compass his defeat. Mr. Blaine had already enjoyed a remarkable career. Born in Pennsylvania of Scotch-Irish parentage, he had been by turns a teacher and an editor, having taken up in 1854 his residence in Maine. In 1858 he had entered the state legislature where for two years he served as speaker. In 1862 he was sent to Congress, and at once made his mark by his readiness in debate, his quick grasp upon political principles, and his exceptional fertility in resource. He had the impetuosity of the Celt and the clear reasoning brain of the Anglo-Saxon, besides that indescribable quality which, for want of a better name, is known as magnetism. His personal charm was indeed remarkable, and it was to this as much as to his other gifts that he owed the extraordinary devotion of his followers and friends. Early in his political life he had been compared to Henry Clay, to whose career his own was to exhibit a striking parallel.
At first he was better known to his associates in Congress than to the country as a whole. But when, in 1869, he was elected Speaker of the House, he rose at once to the rank of a great party leader. It was not, however, until 1876 that he reached the climax of his parliamentary fame. Early in that year, owing to the approach of the centenary of national independence, it was felt that the time had come to hasten the growth of the kindly feeling which already was slowly uniting the sections of the country that had faced each other in the Civil War. To further this object, Mr. Randall of Pennsylvania, a distinguished Democrat, introduced in the House of Representatives a bill to relieve all persons in the United States from any disability imposed by the Fourteenth Amendment to the Constitution. Mr. Blaine was at once upon his feet to offer a substitute. It accepted from this amnesty Jefferson Davis, late president of the so-called Confederate States. After some parliamentary fencing, an exciting debate began. Mr. Blaine, fluent and impassioned, set forth his reasons for accepting Mr. Davis from the amnesty offered by the Randall Bill. His words were chosen with consummate art as if it was his purpose to stir again the embers of sectional strife into a blaze and to exasperate the Southern Democrats whom he confronted on the floor. End of chapter 1, part 1